Good morning, everybody. Great to see you this morning. Welcome along to BCC, especially if this is your first time. Should we just say a warm welcome to all of our first-time people and just give them a quick round of applause? Very nice to see you. See quite a few, quite a few new faces here today. Uh, really warm welcome to you all. Um, I want to open with a story from uh, a 1999 film called The Thomas Crown Affair. Uh, in that particular film, it starred Pierce Brosnan as a billionaire uh, with too much time on his hands. And uh, he would set himself ridiculous challenges like stealing very valuable pieces of artwork from highly protected art galleries. Uh, and there was a particular art gallery that he had his eye on, and there was a $100 million Claude Monet impressionist painting hanging up in this uh, uh, art gallery, and he decided that he would set himself the target of trying to steal this. Uh, now, the difficulty with this uh, uh, project that he set himself was that this painting was protected by thermal imaging cameras 24-7. So what that means, what a thermal imaging camera does is it picks out uh, heat that is given off by human bodies. So you can see, even when it's pitch black, you can see where people are from the heat that they're giving off. Uh, you may well have seen uh, things on YouTube or on TV where, you know, there's a police helicopter giving chase and it's got an aerial, you know, footage or shot from a camera up above of fugitives running around, you know, running through housing estates and climbing over back gardens and hiding to try and get away from pursuing police officers. And what you'll, what you'll hear the, the, the commentary saying from the helicopter is, oh, he's, he's behind the shed. And, uh, you know, the, the, the policemen will kind of converge on the shed and they will capture this guy because he is giving off heat from his body and the thermal, thermal imaging camera in the helicopter is revealing where he is. Uh, and so Thomas Crown has this challenge on his hands. He's set himself this task of stealing this painting um, and he needs to get past these thermal imaging cameras uh, and get through security. So he comes up with this ingenious idea. He decides to visit the... Uh, uh, art gallery during the day and he leaves a heater in a suitcase in the room where this uh, very valuable painting is hanging and gradually during the afternoon the heat of the room rises and rises and rises and he, it rises eventually to body temperature so that when he arrives in the evening uh, and breaks in to steal the painting he is the same temperature as the thermal as the as the room and so the thermal imaging cameras cannot pick him up um, he achieves what's called a whiteout a whiteout is when you're looking at a thermal image and basically the whole lot is white because it's all the same temperature and there's no gradation. There's no ability to discern uh, the, uh, the outlines of people or what's going on. And of course, with the whiteout, uh, Thomas Crown, as this character in this film, is able to uh, get, get the painting off the wall and make his escape uh, before the security people realise what's going on. Now, um, it's an enjoyable film, it's quite entertaining to watch, it's quite slick, um, but I, I find myself with these kind of creative pieces in films wondering, could that really happen? I don't know if you ever do that where you watch a film and you go, yeah, that was cool, but like, is that really doable? I don't know if you ever think that when you're watching a film. I often think, oh, that's a great idea, but would it work in real life? Um, I did some digging around on this particular film to find out if that might be a possibility. And there's actually a guy called Dr. Jonathan Hare, who is the, in the chemistry department at the University of Sussex. And he uh, investigated this very scene uh, and wrote a paper on it for the Royal uh, Society of Chemistry, would you believe? And his conclusion on, is it possible to raise the temperature in a room sufficiently that you can get in there unseen? He says no. And the reason that you can't do that is that different objects give off different levels of heat. 
Uh, it's possible to, you know, uh, I don't know if you've ever come across the term or heard of the term uh, economy seven. Uh, there's a system of heating houses using lower priced electricity late at night called economy seven. And what it does is it heats up the bricks in storage heaters and then the bricks gradually release the heat during the day uh, and you keep your house warm that way and it's a way of saving money. But the bricks are able to give off the heat at a sort of slow rate. Other things give off heat at a higher rate or they lose their heat quite quickly. Uh, so things like, you know, things made of china perhaps might keep heat or, or give off heat, you know, they might lose heat much more quickly. What he basically says is that uh, a person is going to give off different kinds of heat, uh, the, the ambience of the room would have different aspects in it, and also the security cameras that use thermal imaging have a wide range of sensitivity, and he believes that you're going to be able to spot somebody trying to pull off a heist like this. And of course, you have the very obvious fact that for a $100 million painting hanging in a, an art gallery, it's very unlikely they're just going to allow a suitcase with a heater to sit there in the room, warming the room up. That's, that stretches the bounds of the imagination, doesn't it? Uh, just to share a tiny little story with you, myself and Luca went and did some filming in the ICC. And if you come to the Lazelles event next Sunday, you'll see that little film. It's just a celebration of our diversity. Um, it's just only a minute or so long, but it's, it, you know, you, you'll see that as part of, uh, part of the occasion. Um, and we got moved on by the ICC security within, <laughs> within like 15 minutes. They were on to us. We got visited by a couple of guys who very nicely but very firmly said, on your way, you know. <laughs> so we got shown the door pretty quickly. So I think security teams who are worth their, worth their pay would be onto something like that. So for various reasons, I think the, the idea behind that film probably wouldn't fly, okay? But it got me thinking. It got me thinking. Is there something equivalent that could effectively hide us from God when it comes to sin? Is there something that we can deploy or use so that God's sin imaging cameras, not, if you imagine jumping across the idea of not heat, heat imaging, but sin imaging, is there something that God could, or that we could use or get from God or somehow find that would allow us to create a whiteout when it comes to sin? Because the aspect that we have of sin must be highly visible to him. You know, the, it says several, in several places throughout the Bible that God is looking through the earth to see who is righteous and who isn't. And he knows where sin is. He's able to detect it. If you imagine God's got like a kind of a spiritual camera in the sky, if you like, and he's looking down on the earth and he's seeing all of us walking around, it must be possible for him to spot, hmm, okay, there's some sin there and there's some sin there and, and, and so on. And he's got access and insight into not just like our minds and our thoughts and the things we say and, and the, the actions we take and so on and so on, but also our history and our hopes and so on. See, he's got full visibility. But is there something that might be possible to prevent that? Is there some sort of a, like a covering system where we could hide from that? Now, I'm not going to get into whether that's a great idea to hide from that because I don't think it is, but I'm interested in that concept. Could we have something that would protect us in that way? Uh, Proverbs 15.3 says this, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere observing the wicked and the good. Hebrews 4.13 says, no creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And just yesterday in the Bible reading plan that some of us are following through in the YouVersion app, um, it included a passage from Jeremiah. 
and Jeremiah lets us know what the Lord has been think what the Lord thinks about the visibility of, of sin in, in his people. Jeremiah 16, 17 says this: My gaze, that's the Lord, takes in all their ways. In other words, all the people's ways. They are not concealed from me, and their iniquity is not hidden from my sight. So the Bible tells us in lots of places that God can see sin. He can he spots it, he knows it, he he's got He's got sin imaging cameras uh, in his mentality, and he can spot sin. It stands out to him. Um, So how could we overcome that? Is there a way to overcome that? Can we hide from that? Can Can we go under the radar, as it were, and not be spotted? I want to put it to us today that the sin detection of heaven does not work on some people. That's a really radical idea. That almost feels heretical, doesn't it? I'm going to suggest that there are some people for whom when God looks at them, there isn't any sin emitting off them. You know, this professor describes the property of heat coming off something as emissivity. Apparently that's a, a word. And it's to do with how, it, how an object can emit heat. But how would we as people emit sin, but then in, be in some kind of I don't know, structure or arrangement or pattern or whatever it might be, that it didn't emit sin to God when he's looking. That's a a kind of a strange concept to kind of get ourselves into. And then how could we become one of those people? You know, like, it would be pretty good to have some kind of an interior system that kind of drastically reduced our sin down and also stopped sin being given off of us so that we don't get picked up by God's cameras. Does that make sense? Are you following me? Yeah? Well, we're in part six of our series called The Cross, and uh, this series undertakes to try and examine the cross from a number of different perspectives. And what I want you to imagine is we're looking at the cross over a series of weeks from different standpoints and and avenues in. And today's message is called Passover. Uh, Now, we live in a city that has lots of overpasses, don't we? Uh, In fact, famously so, we have one of the most complicated overpass systems in the world. It's called Spaghetti Junction. Hands up here who's ever got lost in Spaghetti Junction. I have. I've kind of thought I've got the right place, and then the the motorway bridge curves around this way, and I'm like, I wanted to be over there. And you have to kind of pause the car and kind of reorient your sat-nav. So we have an overpass system, and we know what that means. We travel on those. But what about a Passover? What does that mean? Well, I'm going to take us back in a bit of a journey to understand that by looking at something where God passes over his people. And there is something that happens that means that he is deliberately, intentionally not picking out some of those people that he passes over for their sin. Uh, so it's a bit like one of those police thermal imaging cameras, but for certain people, they don't spot, they don't spot the cameras don't spot them. How does God achieve that and why does he do it? And I want to propose that kind of rather crazy thought to us today, that God is able to do that for people whom he chooses to allow that to happen for. And that actually the cross is a part of that story. And it links back to something that happens in the Old Testament called the Passover, in which that apparatus or mechanism is made available to us. Let me take you on a very brief history of Israel. I don't want to kind of get too bogged down in this, but in essence, uh, Jacob is one of the forefathers of, of, of Israel, and he has 12 sons. 
One of his sons is greatly favoured. That's Joseph. Um, he's Joseph of uh, Tim Rice's musical, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. You've heard of that. Um, uh, these, the, uh, the other brothers are jealous of Joseph. They sell him into slavery. He goes off with slave traders to Egypt. He has a bit of a tough time there in various different ways. But then he's elevated. And the pharaoh of Egypt, the king of Egypt at that time, gives him favour. And he effectively becomes... Uh, the Prime Minister of Egypt. He's like the Liz Truss of Egypt. Uh, slightly awkward comparison, isn't it, I guess? But he, he, becomes, he becomes Prime Minister in Egypt, okay? And he's in charge of everything, and he gets a, a job making sure that Egypt is ready for a famine that he's been told about in a dream. And he gets all the, the, the grain stores ready, uh, and, and then his brothers are in real difficulty in the land of Canaan. They've got, no, they've, got, they've got no food because this famine is pretty much around the known world. And they make a journey to him. They don't recognize him. But then they do, and there's a massive reconciliation. And what happens is, is that Jacob and his 12 sons and, uh, and so on, they all move in to be in Egypt along with Joseph. Uh, and Pharaoh gives them great favor. And that's where we find ourselves at the sort of like, almost like a, a beginning of where we're going with this story. Now, 400 years pass, and uh, Jacob and all of his descendants um, become very numerous in the land of Egypt. Uh, they become a, a, effectively the formation of a nation. And by the time we get to where we are with our story, we're talking about 2 million males, I think. So it's, uh, sorry, uh, 600,000 males, 2 million people. So it's a, it's a, a lot of people uh, in sort of displaced and in the land of Egypt. Then what happens is another ruler rises up, a pharaoh who has no favor towards the people of Israel at all. And in fact, he suppresses them. He um, brings them into bondage. They're forced to make bricks under terrible conditions. They get whipped. And the people start crying out to God. Uh, And part of the theme of this story is that when we're under pressure and under affliction, we're more predisposed to cry out to God, aren't we? It's just in our human nature when things are going swimmingly. <laughs> well, God, you're, you're fine. We're friends, but I don't need you. And then the minute, the minute things get tough, you start pressing into God. Do you relate? I, I, I'm guilty of that. I don't know about you. Uh, but So the, the people of, of Israel are under real pressure. They're, uh, they're under real sort of um, oppression from uh, this horrible Pharaoh who makes them work uh, for their living. Uh, and so God raises up a... a, a a baby boy called Moses. Uh, Moses grows up into a young man and he's in Pharaoh's court. That's another story for another day. He then gets very incensed by how his own people are being treated and he murders an Egyptian and puts him in the sand and then that gets discovered and he runs away and he's effectively off in hiding for 40 years. And during that time, God matures him. And then one day God calls him to a burning bush and he speaks to him out of the burning bush and he says, Moses, I want you to go and release my people into freedom. And Moses says, ask someone else. <laughs> and then God says, no, I'm asking you. And then, you know, that's another, we, we talked about that in an, another series, at another point, didn't we, uh, last, you know, earlier this year in the Assigned series. Um, so Moses grudgingly accepts his uh, calling and he goes and he confronts Pharaoh and he says to Pharaoh, I want you to set my people free. Uh, and Pharaoh is very hard-hearted and he is not keen on releasing the people whatsoever. Uh, and so what God says to, to Moses and also to Pharaoh is, I'm going to send a series of plagues. And, and the plagues and the hard-heartedness of Pharaoh are a little bit like a picture of how we are in our spiritual journey. Um, who knows here in this room and also on our live stream, who knows that sometimes we have these compartments in our lives that we're very, very unwilling to, get lo- to let go of. Uh, and then we, when we look at other parts of our lives, we've let go, we've let go of those and given those to God. And, and he's doing a great job with those. But for some strange reason, we find it ever so hard to let go of this thing here. 
and let God do a good job with that. And our hard-heartedness wrestles with this, and it goes backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. And our journey of discipleship is sometimes a wrestling match over the bits that we've compartmentalized that we're not prepared to let go of. And Pharaoh represents that battle to all of us, and that kind of pulling and shoving that goes on in our willfulness of not surrendering things to God. So God says, God says to Moses, right, I'm going to send some plagues. And these are difficulties. These are, are setbacks on a national level uh, that are designed to show God's glory and his power and to help the people be released. Now, can you remember some of the plagues? Let's, let's go through them. Uh, you can shout these out if you want. What was the first plague? Anyone know what the first plague was? Speak it out. Tell me. I think I heard the word blood. Maybe I'm manufacturing that. Somebody shouted it. Yeah. Turning all the water in the Nile to blood was the first plague that God uh, called out on the nation of Egypt. The second one? Frogs. Yeah, absolutely. Frogs everywhere. Absolutely everywhere. The third one? Gnats. A plague of gnats, like buzzing around in the air, flying absolutely everywhere. Fourth one? Swarms of flies. But interestingly, not on the nation of Israel. So the swarms of flies only settled on uh, the Egyptians. Then there was the fifth one, the death of the livestock. Anyone know what the plague number six was? Some of you are kind of jumping into your YouVersion app and in your Bible and checking this out now, aren't you? (laughs) It's boils, boils on the skin. I mean, that's really horrendous, isn't it? Everybody to have boils. You know, we've just had COVID, but imagine if that was boils. I mean, my goodness, that would just be horrible. And then we've got hail, haven't we? Hail coming down from the sky and, and kind of stripping everything and destroying everything. And then we have locusts, as if the hail wasn't bad enough, we have locusts that come and, and they eat everything and they're just awful. Did you know that locusts change their physicality when they swarm? That's a horrible idea, isn't it? It's almost like kind of sci-fi, that they're, they're a certain structure when they're not swarming and then they go all kind of big and full of steroids and stuff when they swarm. It's horrible. You know, don't, don't research that. You'll be really disgusted by it. Um, and then there's the, 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 the penultimate plague is a plague of darkness, a darkness that you, where you can't even see your own hand in front of your face. Um, and then the final plague, and this is where we get into this idea of Passover, is that God is going to send a death to all the firstborn males of every family, both human and livestock, in the land of Egypt. And the idea behind the the plagues is is to basically, not just to represent the to and fro pulling of the the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, but it's also to reveal that the power of God becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. And Pharaoh's uh, kind of demonic magicians aren't able to match God's power. Because at the beginning, they're able to match him plague for plague. They can turn water into blood as well. They can send loads of gnats. But then they start to realize that they're unable to match uh, the Lord in his power. Um, So there's a gradual realization from Pharaoh that actually Moses has God on his side and that there are powers that he has no access to. Turn with me in your Bibles and in your version on your your devices to Exodus chapter 12, uh, from verses 1 to 13. We've got the notes from today's message um, in the YouVersion app there. So if you jump into that, click on events, 
uh, and then you'll find uh, our content there. You can also always get the link to our Uversion events from our YouTube stub, you know, just underneath the YouTube as it goes live. Uh, just jump in there and have a look. And I'd really encourage you to just make some notes and add your own notes as we go. It's a very useful tool to interact with a message, and then later when, you've, when you save that, later on you can go back and, and have a look at the notes you made. Let's pick it up from Exodus 12, from verse 1 there. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month is to be the beginning of months for you. It is the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, they must each select an animal of the flock according to their father's families, one animal per family. If the household is too small for a whole, anim for a whole animal, that person and the neighbor nearest his house are to select one based on the combined number of people. You should apportion the animal according to what each will eat. You must have an, unble an unblemished animal, a year-old male. You may take it from either the sheep or the goats. You are to keep it until the 14th day of the month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. They must take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they eat them. The lintel being the kind of crossbar over a door. They are to eat the meal that night. They should eat it roasted over the fire along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in boiling water, but only roasted over fire, its head as well as its legs and inner organs. You must not leave any of it until morning. Any part of it left until morning, you must burn. Here is how you must eat it. You must be dressed for travel, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. You are to eat in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. And just as an aside, each of the plagues represents an attack against the gods of Egypt. And you can go back and look at some of the historical gods from Egyptian history and how God basically confronts each of them and, and how that all fits together. That, that's again another a time, you know, a message for another time. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Let's just pick out some key things that the Lord is saying there to the people of Israel. Notice how there's a calendar reset. This is a massively important occasion. And God says that it's so important, you are now going to start the start of, your, your start of your year is going to be from Passover. You are resetting your calendar time and how you think about time from the significance of this event. This is a little bit like us restarting our calendar when Jesus was born. We, you know, we take our calendar from the birth of Jesus, don't we? Roughly. I think there was a mistake made, but <laughs> we try, or we have attempted to try and refigure our, our calendar from the birth of Jesus. The second thing to just note is that blood from a sacrificed animal on doorposts and lintels is the thing that provides the protection as God passes through killing the firstborn via this deadly plague or via the avenging angel or whatever it might be. That he, we, We're not really told the mechanism by which this death is, is carried out. But what's really important to understand is it's the blood on the doorposts and the lintel that provides the covering, it provides the protection. Where there are houses with blood brushed on doorposts, God provides an exemption. Now, let's just look at the instruction that Moses passes on to all the elders. Just jump down with me to Exodus 12, verse 21 there. 
Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go, select an animal from the flock according to your families, and slaughter the Passover animal. Take a cluster of hyssop, dip it, uh, hyssop was like a kind of a woody shrub, uh, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and brush the lintel and the two doorposts with some of the, some of the blood in the basin. None of you may go out of the door of his house until morning. When the Lord passes through to strike Egypt and sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, he will pass over the door and not let the destroyer enter your houses to strike you. Now, there's a little bit more uh, material there from God. He, he, he asks the Israelites to remember this sacrifice of the animal being, uh, being slaughtered in this way in a festival each year, going forward from there in a, in a festival called Passover. Uh, and in fact, Jesus goes to the cross on the weekend of Passover. There's a massive significant link there. Uh, and then God goes ahead and does exactly what he says he's going to do. Exodus 12, 29, just jump down to there with me. Now at midnight, the Lord struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and every firstborn of the livestock. During the night, Pharaoh got up, he along with all his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud wailing throughout Egypt because there wasn't a house without someone dead. He summoned Moses and Aaron during the night and said, Get out immediately from among my people, both you and the Israelites, and go. Worship the Lord as you have said. Take even your flocks and your herds as you asked and leave and also bless me. It seems like Pharaoh is nearing that point of being open to God because he asked for a blessing. And then he doesn't in the end because he changes his mind and sends people after the the Israelites as they're escaping and, and we won't get into that today. However... This story does sound pretty barbaric. You know, we've, we've got other parts of the Bible where it says God is love, haven't we? And, and, and so how does God move through a nation killing the firstborn of the males in this way? This seems so barbaric somehow. And yet, as we look forward to Jesus on the cross, what we find is that God never expects from people more than he expects from himself. In other words, we see God's firstborn, Jesus, also put to death, death on a cross. In other words, the calamity that God has visited across Egypt in the 10th plague that we've just heard about, um, the death of the firstborn, is the same calamity that he has permitted and allowed in his own son. I want to point out some other parallels to you that are very important. Uh, We have an unblemished sacrifice. In other words, the, the, the goat or the sheep that the family selects to, in order to be the sacrificial animal cannot have blemishes in it. And that points forward to the spotless nature of Jesus being our sacrificial offering. Jesus was without sin. He was without fault. He was without blemish. At 1 Peter 1.19 tells us this, that Jesus was perfect and without blemish or fault. And that makes him a suitable sacrifice for us says this in verse, uh, from, let's pick it up from verse 18 there of 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. Peter is directly referencing the Passover uh, occurrence back in uh, Exodus 12 here when he says that. Secondly, sp- sacrificial blood splattered over wood provides us with protection 
It, provides the, it provided the people of Israel with protection, and it provides us with protection when we come to think about Jesus. As followers of Jesus, we are covered and protected by God himself through Jesus' blood, shed for us on the cross, in just the same way that the people of Israel who uh, applied the blood to the doorposts and to the lintels were covered and protected by the death that went through the land of Egypt. So in other words, without the blood of the unblemished sacrifice animal, there would be no protection for the people of Israel. Without the blood of the unblemished sacrifice of Jesus, there would be no protection from God's wrath for you and I. We are fully protected from the anger of God, the righteous anger of God at our sin. You know, the Bible tells us that nobody is without sin. We all struggle with sin. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the blood of Jesus covers us and brings us protection from the wrath of God at our sin. 1 John uh, 1.7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Do you remember the image of the idea of the, uh, you know, not the heat-seeking cameras, but the sin-seeking cameras? Well, when a sin-seeking camera looks down from heaven at us and we're covered in the blood of Jesus, no sin is visible. Sin has been uh, taken away. God does not see our sin anymore. That's the mechanism by which we're able to be sin-free. God places his, the, the blood of his son over us, and that camera that's looking up and down throughout the earth only sees righteousness. That's an awesome concept, isn't it? Don't you think that's an incredible thing? That you can go into a church anywhere in the country, and if you receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that means that God's antenna towards sin in your life is gone. He doesn't see it anymore. He only sees Jesus. That's an incredible thing. Yeah, praise God for that. Absolutely. The third thing to say is that we have a sacrificial lamb involved. Now, we have a perfect offering, but we also have this idea that there's a sacrificial lamb involved. And there's a very powerful parallel with how Jesus is described in the New Testament. Um, In John 1.29, we see John the Baptist kind of preparing his ministry. And in the distance, he sees Jesus walking towards him. uh, And it says this, uh, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Referring directly to Jesus and making a reference back to Passover and the sacrificed animal. Isaiah does it. Like 750 years before Jesus comes along, Isaiah 53, one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament, pointing to Jesus. Let me read you verses 6 and 7. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Do you know the next line? Like a lamb led to the slaughter. And like a sheep is silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. That's Isaiah referencing the Passover. Now, whether he actually meant to reference the Passover or not, I'm not sure that he, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. He certainly didn't mean to reference what was coming 750 years later. That's the Holy Spirit speaking through him right there. God gazes on the earth and his sin imaging antennae or, you know, his sin cameras, they don't pick us up anymore. Because we are covered in the blood of Christ by the Passover that was initiated in the Old Testament in Exodus 12 and then finds its fulfillment in Jesus on the cross. In fact, the Bible describes what happens when you accept Jesus into your heart as Lord and Saviour. In Colossians 3, it says it in a beautiful way. It says, for you died and your life is what? It's hidden in Christ with God. You are hidden from that visibility of sin. 
God cannot see your sin because you have Jesus' blood on you if you've received Jesus into your life. I want to suggest three responses to uh, our Passover message this morning. I'm going to ask us to stand, and Kevin and some of the singers are going to come back, and they're going to minister to us. They're a beautiful, that's kind of like an older hymn, isn't it, Kevin, that you've just rich in its imagery with, to do with Passover and sacrifice. But I'm going to suggest three responses, and uh, you, you may want to pick up on all of these, or hopefully, uh, you know, some of them. Would you stand with me? Stand with me, and we're going to, re- we're going to respond. The first and the most obvious thing that we need to make sure of is that we have received Jesus as Lord and Saviour. That is absolutely key. Last weekend, we gave an appeal for people to receive Jesus, and I'm delighted to say four people made a commitment to Jesus. That's an awesome thing. They are now covered, aren't they? What a great thing. And this morning, I sent out a text at a pretty ungodly hour saying to our prayer team, hey, pray that people will receive Jesus today. And so many of us in the church are praying that perhaps one or two of you here today have not received Jesus. Maybe you're kind of were with Jesus for a long time and have fallen away from him and you're not in that regular relationship with him. We're going to pray a prayer now for you to have that opportunity to do that because if you don't have the blood of Jesus over your life, there is nothing between you and the anger of God at your, at your sin. There just isn't. You don't have a defense mechanism. You don't have any means of escaping, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the sin-seeking cameras. You can't do a whiteout in front of God unless you have Jesus' blood. I know it's different colors, but Jesus' blood makes us whiter than snow, right? And we need that. You need that in your life. I need it in my life. Let's make an appeal and let's, let's give you a prayer in which you can, you can know that you are covered uh, by Jesus' blood. Uh, just a verse for, to share with you uh, from Romans 10, uh, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. You will have the blood of Jesus over you as your passport into heaven. You will have the righteousness of God upon you because of Jesus and what he's done for you on the cross. So I'm going to pray a little prayer, and if you want to pray this prayer along with me, and the, the established Christians in the house know what is going on here, you will just indulge me, I know you will. Lord Jesus, I'm really sorry for my sin. I come under your lordship right now. I receive the blood that was shed for me as a protection over me, just like the Passover lamb was a protection to the people of Israel. And I receive your protection, I receive your blessing. Thank you for your righteousness that you have put on me now. And that your sin-seeking cameras in heaven can't spot me now because I've prayed that. And I'm right before you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah, hallelujah, absolutely. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, just while we've got our eyes closed and our heads bowed, just lift your hand just a little bit just to show me. Just show me if you prayed that prayer. And I know that so many of us, you know, especially in the early days of our faith, we, we raise our hands a lot, don't we? We want to make sure we're in there. I get that. But perhaps if you've not prayed this for a long time or maybe it's the first time you've ever prayed it, just raise your hand because we've got something for you that's really great. A, I think I can see two or three hands, certainly one over here. Thank you, sir. That's brilliant. And a gent in the white T-shirt there. Awesome. Should we just give those two guys a round of applause? That's amazing. Great stuff. Well done. Great job. Come on. Our second response, our second response, let us avoid sin. 
You know, there's this temptation that now we've got the white out from Jesus because of his blood, we can just go on our own merry way and kind of use it as a license to sin. And Paul says no in Romans. He says, do not do that. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. That privilege you have of being exempted from God's judgment and anger isn't a license to sin. It's an invitation to walk in a holy life and to do good things. And so maybe during our worship song, one of the things you might want to do is come down the front and make a fresh commitment to the Lord. Yeah, I want to do the right thing, and I want to do it with the power of your spirit on the inside of me, Jesus. I need your help. I need to get this right. And the last verse I want to share with you before we, before we sing together is 1 Thessalonians 2, uh, 11 and 12. And it says this. This came up in today's Bible reading. It says this. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You've been called from a place of, of lostness into a place of being found and you belong in the kingdom of God. If you've made a decision to accept Jesus, you belong to the kingdom of heaven. You are a citizen of heaven now. Your future is assured. It doesn't mean you're not going to have trouble in the future, but you are going to heaven. Your soul is safe. And so we need to live a life worthy of that. Let's pray briefly before we sing. Lord, I thank you for what this picture of the Passover lamb has brought to us this morning. I thank you for the covering of the blood. I thank you for the protection it affords us. And what, what that picture of the, of, the, of the death going over Egypt but not able to touch the people who are protected is such a great picture of, of what you do for us, Jesus, on the cross with your blood. We thank you for that this morning and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to live a life that responds to that, that is worthy of that in all the ways that we can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you want to come and make some vows to God this morning at the front while we sing, you know what, that is absolutely right and appropriate. I'm going to and I'd invite you to do the same. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you, worship team.